Well, here we are, a week after Easter, a week after the celebration of our resurrected Lord. And what a great celebration it was last week, wasn't it? Hope it was special in your home. It was special in our home. We had several guests. And after church, we came home and Sharon made this amazing Easter dinner, the huge tender ham, all the delicious sides. And for dessert, Sharon made her fabulous homemade key lime pie, and, and the slices were, were really big. And, but I was in a quandary when, when dessert was served because I've been really working hard at cutting back on sweets. But, but I reasoned to myself as they were serving dessert, I thought, this is a, this is a special, special pie because, nutritionally speaking, of course, because, because one slice of this key lime pie has only half the calories of two slices. (laughs) And so I ate it down with the satisfaction of knowing I was actually cutting back. And no doubt some of you might adopt my form of logic on that. That was just a small part of the joy of our family's Easter. Uh, Easter should always be joyful. It's the centerpiece of our faith. It changed history. The resurrection changed the lives of Jesus' early followers, and the resurrection is still changing lives today, as we just saw in that video. And that was the essence of Michael's challenge to us last week, wasn't it? To remember the resurrection. And that's part of what we are going to be doing this morning. You see, the true impact of Easter isn't just felt on a Sunday around the 1st of April. But rather, the significance of Easter only just began on that Sunday morning in Jerusalem when the tomb was empty. It was in the weeks that followed and the the months that followed and even the years that followed that the true impact of the resurrection was felt in the lives of Jesus' followers, which is why today, a week after Easter, when I would imagine that many other churches are deciding to start brand new sermon series unrelated to Easter and the resurrection, that we're actually going to dive deeper into it and take a closer look at the life-changing power of the empty tomb in Jesus' early followers, one in particular. So a couple weeks after Jesus rose, his followers had trekked back north, back up to Galilee. And it's there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee that John tells the final story of his gospel. John chapter 21. So take a look with me there. It's a very powerful and a very intimate story of a life-changing encounter between Jesus and Peter. Now, as you may know, Jesus and Peter had many significant encounters between them. But in John 21, we see the story here of the life-altering impact of the risen Jesus on Peter's life and ultimately on our life. And we're going to get a glimpse at just how that empty tomb still impacts lives today. So in John 21, the stage gets set here with verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. 
Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other and two other disciples were there together. Now I'm actually going to push the pause button here on John 21 for a couple reasons. First, tell you it's called the Sea of Tiberias here. Other versions call it's the Sea of Galilee, and another gospel has it listed as the Lake of Gennesaret. All the same body of water. Just don't want you to get confused on that. But also, I'm going to push the pause button here on John 21 because in order for us to appreciate the powerful significance of what is about to happen in Peter's life here in John 21, we need to set it up right. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at another passage. Actually, we're going to skip around between three total passages here that all frame the panorama of Jesus' relationship with Peter. So turn with me. We're going to go back in time about two and a half or three weeks. Rewind with me as we drop in on a scene that many of us are probably familiar with. So skip back to the Gospel of Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 22 as we drop in on what happened that fateful night, that fateful night of Jesus' arrest. Luke 22 starting with verse 54. Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw Peter seated there in the firelight, and she looked at him closely and said, This man was with Jesus. But he denied it. Woman, I don't even know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with Jesus, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned And looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Can you imagine what Peter must have been feeling at that moment? Can you relate with what it would have been like for him in this gut-wrenching scenario that we read, this place just outside of the house of the high priest, this space that would become the courtyard of shame for Peter. Can you relate with him? Maybe you've never denied Christ, though I imagine that some of us in this room have. But have you ever experienced that awful sense that you've totally failed and disappointed God Your circumstances could have been many things, but at the end result is that you were crushed because you felt like you disappointed the God who you love. Have you been there? Maybe for a moment, maybe for a season of life. Maybe you're there right now today. And you, you may have thought to yourself, no real follower of Jesus could have ever done what I did. And like Peter, it might have brought you to a point of tears 
Or it might have brought you to a point where you didn't know what to do, so you ran and hid. Maybe not literally like Peter did, but maybe figuratively speaking. If we're honest, I would imagine that many of us have been there at some point in our life. Our hearts may say at that moment, I I know and I believe what the Bible says, that that Jesus still loves me, but but I wonder if he'll ever trust me again. I'm wondering if after what I did, God could ever use me. Do you ever feel like you've been disqualified because of something that you've done? That's exactly where Peter was right then. And we're going to come back later in our message to this disastrous night for Peter. But I read this now because we needed to recall what took place here, what took place here this night before Jesus dies in order to fully appreciate the significant impact of what was going to take place after he rose again, after his resurrection. Okay, now forward back with me to John 21, if you would. Turn back to John 21, back at the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Peter is there with six other disciples. And Peter says, in verse 3, he says, I'm going out to fish. And the other disciples said, okay, we're coming with you. And so they got out in Peter's boat, and they fished all night long, it says. I think it's worth noting that John, in writing his gospel, did not say, and the disciples all went out fishing. He could have said that. That would have made sense. But instead, I believe that the Holy Spirit led John to pay special attention and to focus in his writing on the fact that it was Peter that said, I'm going fishing. You see, because I think that Peter may have been considering returning at this point to his old life, returning to the life that he knew before he ever met Jesus. We don't know this, but it sure merits consideration. He was a fisherman. That's what he did. That had been his job. It's what he knew. It was something that Peter knew that he could be good at again. So no doubt as he gets back on his boat that day to go out fishing, he was still reeling. No no pun intended. (laughs) But he was still reeling from denying his Savior and his friend. From the Scriptures, we know that Jesus since the resurrection, had already appeared two different times to the disciples as a group. But it doesn't tell us if Jesus had spent any one-on-one time with Peter. So it's likely that Peter may have still been wrestling with what Jesus thought about him since that, after that night. More than likely, Peter was still plagued by his sense of failure. So he did what many of us would probably do. Do something that we're good at, something that may make us feel a little bit better about ourselves. For Peter, it was fishing. He figured he could at least contribute some value to his friends by going out and bringing in some food for them or maybe even provide some income. And so they headed out, and and the back half of verse 3 here tells us that even though they were out fishing all night long, they didn't catch a thing. Not a small catch. No catch, not a single bite. And I imagine Peter now thinking, can I do anything right now? I can't even, do, I can't even fish well. I'm sure he was thinking something like, I was good at this. I was, I was a pro. Back, I would have been on the, 
the uh, Israeli equivalent of the professional Bassmasters tour. This is what I, I did. And I was willing to give all that up. But now when I come back to the boat, I can't even bring in breakfast for my friends. He was probably thinking like, great, one more failure, one more humiliation, one more time exposed as less than. But then, at that moment, something happened. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up like he always does, not a minute too late, not a minute too early. At our moment of greatest need, our moment of greatest need for his grace and for his presence, Jesus shows up. You've probably experienced this. I would imagine that many of you right now are thinking of a moment in your life where you most needed God's touch and his presence and his grace. And he showed up. Often he's there. He's always there, but sometimes we don't notice. Sometimes we're not looking. But just like he showed up on that beach that morning right on time, while the disciples were still out on that boat, pick up here with me in verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And Jesus called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. So he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they they did, it tells us that they were unable to haul the net in because of the amazingly large number of fish. Okay, let's pause right there. As they're pulling in this huge catch of fish, if I was one of them, if I was one of the disciples, if I were James or John or Peter right then, I'd be saying, wait a minute, this seems fairly familiar. Haven't we been here before? I don't know what the Jewish equivalent of deja vu is, but, but that's probably what they were experiencing because, as, 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 as you may know, a little more than three years before that, at that very same lake, something very, very similar took place. Luke 5 records this. Luke 5, which is at the very start of Jesus' public ministry, the very beginning. Of course, we've been reading about the last chapter of Jesus' public ministry. This is the very start. So turn back with me to Luke 5, where it reads, One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, Jesus saw at the, word, at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. Jesus got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, who was not yet called Peter, and he asked him to put out a little from the shore. And then Jesus sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now put out into deep water and then let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And then when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled their boat so full that both the boats began to sink. Amazing similarities, aren't there, between these two early... The, the first was the very early encounter between Jesus 
and his soon-to-be followers. And the last was, was, a, was a last one. And in both instances, Jesus shows up at the same lake after the same men had been out fishing all night long, both times catching nothing. And in both instances, Jesus tells them, here's what you need to do. Put your nets over here. Follow what I'm telling you. And they did it. And both times, huge hauls of fish came in. You see these two scenes? They serve as bookends for the panorama of Jesus' relationship with Peter. And here in Luke 5, where Jesus was about to first call Peter to seriously follow him as a disciple, it's very important to catch how Simon Peter responded to this miracle doer named Jesus. Take a look. Look at verse 8 with me. When Simon Peter saw this, the miraculous catch of fish, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. What did Peter do right here? And why? He fell before Jesus, not just in recognition of Jesus' miraculous powers and not just in recognition of Jesus' holiness, but I think he fell before him in recognition of his own sinfulness, his own unworthiness, his own guilt, his own humiliation and, and fear, and his own shame. And Peter has only one thing to say to Jesus at that moment. He asks only one thing of him. He asks Jesus to go away. He asks Jesus to leave him, to be gone. Why? All I can imagine is that Peter felt so convicted, so unworthy, that his only response was to somehow to be out of his presence. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt and experienced what he did? Well, how did Jesus respond to Peter's request? Did Peter get what he wanted? Did Peter get anything close to what he asked? Did Jesus res respond the way that Peter expected him to? Did Jesus say, oh, oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, I've been watching you. Yeah, uh, you've got quite the reputation. So I obviously stepped into the wrong boat here. So just give me a few minutes and I'll be on my way. I'll be looking for someone else, someone, someone more suitable for what I've got in mind, someone that's less sinful. I'll be looking for someone who won't ever disappoint me, someone I can really use, someone who will never let me down, someone much more qualified than you to help me get my ministry launched effectively. Did Jesus say that? If he had, if that had been Jesus' mindset, he could have said those same things about me and many of us. So aren't we thankful that that was not his response? But what did he say? Look at verse 10. In the second half of the verse where it says, Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. From now on, Instead of catching fish, you're going to be with me. And Simon, because you're going to be with me, I'm going to work through you. And you're about to go on the greatest fishing adventure that you could ever imagine. Because you're going to be fishing for the souls and the hearts and the lives of men and women. 
The job interview, it was over. Peter's qualifications were met by Jesus himself. Peter's job now was to follow Jesus. Jesus's job, as Peter followed him, was to make him usable. And verse 11, it seals the deal where it tells us, verse 11, so they, they pulled up their boats from the shore and they left them. They left everything and they followed Jesus. So Peter, here in Luke 5, he found himself at first at a point of moral crisis, didn't he? He even pleaded with Jesus to leave him, but Jesus wouldn't do it. Instead, Jesus said, no, I can work with you because, Simon, I know your heart. And by the way, I'm going to change your name to Peter, the rock. And just wait and see what you can learn from me and just wait and see what God has in store. And so the rest of the gospel is the unfolding over the next three plus years of how Peter and the other disciples would be used by God to impact lives throughout Israel and beyond. Okay, so now let's fast forward three plus years back to that fateful night, that night of Jesus' arrest, that night before he was crucified, where Peter, who is now Jesus' go-to guy, denied him. And he experienced crisis point number two. He denied even knowing Jesus. And what made this all the more intense was that earlier that evening, Peter had, had said brashly in front of all of his peers, Jesus, no matter what happens, I'm willing to go to prison with you and for you. I'm even willing to go to death for you. And yet, when everything came crashing down around him, when Peter saw his hero arrested, he couldn't do it. He cowered. He caved. He had multiple opportunities over and over and over. But with each one, he denied knowing Jesus. He denied having any relationship with him at all. And across that dark courtyard, with only the dim light of a small fire, he caught Jesus' eyes looking back at him. Their eyes met. And what do you think Peter saw in Jesus' eyes? Condemnation? Shock? Fear? Disgust? I don't think so. Probably some sadness and fed by compassion and genuine love. But no matter what, regardless of what Peter saw in Jesus' eyes, how did Peter respond? His only impulse at that moment was to flee. He had to get out of there. It might have been fleeing from fear, but I think it also was fleeing from being at a place in Jesus' presence. He couldn't bear to see those eyes looking at him. So he left the warmth of that courtyard and he headed out into the cold all by himself. And he wept. He wept bitterly. Can you picture this? I imagine that Peter had never felt more alone in his life and no doubt he'd never felt greater sense of despair over his failure than he did then. And there's a pattern we see here, isn't there, with Peter? There's a pattern. At crisis point number one, just as Jesus was about to ask Peter to follow him as a disciple, Peter asked Jesus to leave. Jesus wouldn't do it. At crisis point number two here in the courtyard, 
just a few yards away from Jesus, Peter had to leave the scene. He had to flee from Jesus' presence. And in John 21, where the gospel account ends, we come full circle, full circle to crisis point number three for Peter. Because in John 21, back at that lake, as Peter was still dealing with his sense of failure as a disciple, it was then, it was then that Jesus shows up. We pick up in verse 7 of John 21, as Jesus once again had provided a miraculous catch of fish. And John, when they're pulling up the fish, he looks at the shore and he recognizes who that man was that told them to cast their nets out. He said, look, it's the Lord. And they head into shore and they unload more than 150 fish that they caught. And on that beach, at this small fire that Jesus had, had, had begun for them, they have breakfast. They eat together some of the fish that they brought in. And I imagine that this is the point where Peter was facing another crossroads. His, remember, he had not had a one-on-one discussion with Jesus, as far as we know. So I, have, I imagine that Peter's denial was still a very heavy weight of shame and guilt. And at this critical juncture in Peter's life, and Jesus shows up, he shows up for all the disciples, but he had special intentions for Peter. After breakfast, I imagine he turned to Peter and said, hey, Peter, you and me, let's go for a walk down the beach. And it says, as we pick up in verse 15, as they were speaking, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And Jesus said again, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time that he said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, you've probably undoubtedly heard this taught before, that Jesus was very, very intentional about giving Peter this threefold opportunity to profess his love for Jesus because Jesus wanted to express to Peter his forgiveness, Jesus' forgiveness and restoration over Peter's threefold denial of even knowing Christ. And I believe this to be true, but I also think that there was more to it than just that. I think that Jesus was also driving home a message. Yes, Jesus did know that Peter loved him, which is why Jesus was very clear in showing Peter that it's going to be Peter's love for Jesus which, by the way, is just a response to Jesus' love for Peter. But it's going to be his love for Jesus that was going to be the foundation of Peter's future ministry as the shepherd of the sheep of Jesus, the church. Because the essence of the gospel, the essence of Jesus' truth and his grace, the essence of forgiveness was displayed right there on that shoreline. Did you see it? Did you catch it? Think about it. Had Peter done anything to deserve 
how Jesus responded to him. No, not at all. By all human accounts and measures of fairness, had Peter disqualified himself, humanly speaking, from ever being fit to represent Jesus? Yeah, he had. And if God was fair, technically speaking, should Peter have been given a leadership role in the church? No. But instead of showing up with fairness, Jesus shows up with grace and with truth, just like he shows up for us. I want to show you something. I want to show you a brief video clip. I want to show you something that is a powerful real-life example of the power of the resurrection, the power of the gospel of grace and truth, the power of Christ. This is a clip that you might have seen before because it's a short clip from the funeral service of Billy Graham. And what you're going to hear is one of his daughters, his daughter Ruth, talking about her famous father. Take a look and listen. After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. I floundered. I did a lot wrong. The rug was pulled out from under me. My family thought it'd be a good idea for me to move away, to get a fresh start somewhere else. So I decided to live near my older sister and her family and near a good church. The pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, you know, they were almost grown. They didn't know what they could, they couldn't tell me what to do. I knew what was best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo. They said, honey, why don't you slow down? Let us wait to get to know this man. They had never been a single parent. They had never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn, willful, and sinful. I married a man, this man, on New Year's Eve. And within 24 hours, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. What was I going to do? I wanted to go talk to my mother and my father. It was a two-day drive. Questions swirled in my mind. What was I going to say to Daddy? What was I going to say to Mother? What was I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. What were they going to say to me? You, we, we're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. And let me tell you, you women will understand you don't want to embarrass your father. You really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. And many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway, and my father was standing there waiting for me. As I got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me and he said, welcome home. There was no shame, there was no blame, there was no condemnation, just unconditional love. And you know, my father was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. When we come to God with our sin, our brokenness, our failure, 
our pain and our hurt, God says, welcome home. Yeah. Wow. Let me ask you something. Who is the hero of that story? Was the hero of that story Billy Graham? Or was the hero of the story his Lord? Because Billy Graham was only emulating the grace and the love of Jesus, who he knew, who he knew so well that he had become an agent of that grace to many others, and in this case, to his daughter. You don't have Billy Graham as your dad, but we have Billy Graham, excuse me, we have, we have our own Heavenly Father who also responds to our failure and to our remorse and to our repentance with arms open wide. And it's that embrace, that, that embrace of grace that changes us. Are there things in your life that have caused you to think, God can't ever use me again after after I did that? Things that perhaps you've never told anyone, but they still weigh you down in your spiritual life. Perhaps it's something that God wants you to bring before him, to present before him and confess And watch him. Watch him forgive. And watch him take that in our lives which seems ugly. And watch him take it and forgive it and show up and redeem it and replace it with resurrection beauty. Watch him show up because that is what he he does. He shows up with grace and truth. He shows up with resurrection power. And it changes us. It changed Peter. Peter was never the same. In a matter of just a few weeks after that encounter on the seashore, God's Holy Spirit empowered Peter to preach the gospel. And in one day, 3,000 people were added to the family of faith. And ever since that day, the church of Jesus has been expanding. And all this was possible because of what we celebrated one week ago today the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus was still dead and still in that tomb, Peter, he would have gone back to to the fishing boat till his dying days, I imagine, probably never overcoming his sense of guilt and shame as a follower of Jesus. But aren't we glad that that tomb is empty? Because Easter changes everything. It changes our lives. It gives us a new sense of purpose. Because of the resurrection, we've been given grace. And because we've been given grace, we're freed up to extend that grace to others. Because of the resurrection, we've been forgiven. And because we've been forgiven, we're freed up to forgive others who have wronged us. Because of the resurrection, we've been given the Holy Spirit. And because we've been given the Holy Spirit... We're freed up to live lives empowered by Jesus, empowered to experience his love, his joy, and his peace. We're freed up from sin's control, and we're freed to live under the Spirit's control. Because of the resurrection, 
We've embraced the gospel. And because we've been embraced by his gospel, we're freed up to be ambassadors of that same gospel to those who he puts around us. You see, the resurrection frees us up and calls us to an entirely new life. Peter was living proof of this. He was living proof that none of us are beyond redemption. None of us are beyond our own resurrection and restoration and being changed, all because of what we celebrated a week ago. Because Jesus left the tomb, and he showed up, and he still shows up. As his church, as the body of Christ, the greatest display of our celebration of the resurrection isn't what happens on Sunday morning, even though that was great. It's not, the, it's not a full church with beautiful music and beautiful flowers and a great sermon. No, the greatest display for the body of Christ of our celebration of the resurrection is when Jesus lives his resurrected life in us and through us. And when that happens, that's when Jesus shows up. Pray with me. Lord, your, your scripture made it so clear and said it so well that we're able to love and love you because you first loved us. You did it all. You pursued us when we were probably running away from you. You adopted us into your family when we did everything uh, to be undeserving. You call us heirs. All of this was possible only because you showed up on earth when heaven was where you belonged. You showed up at the cross on our behalf. And then you showed up out of that tomb. Lord, you showed up in all these ways. And may our response be that we would live life changed, that we would live life reflecting your grace, reflecting the power of your gospel that we would be a reflection of the celebration of Easter year-round, Lord. And we ask you this in Christ's name. Amen.